so excited that you guys are here today. And we are going to get into the word. And it's going to be brought by our brother and cohort advisor, Jared Walker. So you guys can give him a hand clap as he comes. Thank you, Lauren. Let's give it up for Pastor Lauren. She is the glue that holds this cohort together. Can we get some lights on here, please? How's everyone doing this afternoon? All right. Let's turn in our Bibles to Isaiah chapter 6. You should be getting your handouts right about now, so that contains... Uh, our sermon notes. Today's message is entitled, Will You Go for God? And as I was preparing this message, I couldn't help but think of the uncertainty that comes when you obey God. The thing about the future, folks, is that the future is always uncertain, right? You have no control Despite your best laid plans, you have no control over what's going to happen, what's going to take place. That's even more so true when God says, go, and you, and you obey. You say, here I am, send me. It's even more true because you are, you are now totally out of control, right? It's not just Jesus, take the wheel, right? It's Jesus, this is your car, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to put myself in the trunk. You know what I'm saying? Jesus, you go wherever you want to go. It's not, I'm not playing backseat driver. You know what I'm saying? Jesus is fully in control. You understand that your life does not belong to you. Amen? And so there's a lot of uncertainty here. We're going to look at a few biblical case studies of people who, were, who went for God. So we're past tense. We're go for God. They went uh, for God. Let's look at this paragraph here in the notes. It says, will you go for God? Will you allow him to dictate the course of your entire life for the purposes of his kingdom? Will you go wherever he sends you and say whatever he tells you and do whatever he shows you, regardless of cost or consequence? Will you go if no one else does? Will you go where it's unfamiliar? Will you go when the world and Satan resist you? Will you go for the rest of your life? If, like the prophet Isaiah, you have encountered the Lord of glory and heard his call for faithful messengers, how can you but say yes to all of the above? You are here today because God has spoken to you. And if God has spoken to you, God is sending you. And if God has sent you, God will go with you. And if God goes with you, God will never fail you. And you will have all you need and you will be forever glad. And everybody said, Amen. I reference here the prophet Isaiah. It says in Isaiah chapter 6 verse 8, this is the call of the prophet. Isaiah has a vision of the throne room of God. He sees God and his glory fills the temple and there are six winged angels called seraphim crying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. More on that in a few minutes. But in the midst of this vision, we see verse 8. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? 
And I said, here am I, send me. Now, how would you respond if you were the prophet in that moment? Beholding the glory of God in his temple. Who will go for us? Who will we send? How can you say anything but here I am, send me? How can, you, how can you resist him? How can you deny him? How can you refuse him? If God calls you, how can you possibly say no? Or choose somebody else? Or think of some way that you, you, you would disqualify yourself. I'm not smart enough. I'm not bold enough. Uh, whatever. Just think of something that disqualifies you. Some way basically to say God's wrong and, and God is way off in choosing somebody like you and that he should look somebody, somewhere else. Friend, if you had an encounter with God like Isaiah did, you'd never say that. And if you had an encounter with God... That's going to keep you all the days of your life. You're never going to forget that. You know, it's said about the prophets that each of them must have had some sort of cataclysmic event happen in their lives. You have Isaiah's throne room vision, Isaiah chapter 6. You have Ezekiel's vision of God's throne. And there's the wheel within the wheel. It's really trippy, right? You have Jeremiah's calling, and we could go on and on with folks who heard the voice of God and met their creator, and they were never the same. Just like if you were hit by a Mack truck, and somehow you survived, but for the rest of your life, you'd never be the same. You can't get hit by a Mack truck and just like, I'm cool, I'm cool, right? You, you, you would be forever changed. You would be altered by that experience. And we have current students here that have had those encounters, that have heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Current students, I, I believe you have all said yes to that. There are some prospective students. Uh, some of you are still deciding that. Right? That's probably a bad wording there because it's not up for you to decide. You're here because you're here because God sent you. Amen? This is of God. It's not of me. It's not of you. It's not of anybody else. It's, it's God. We're not even going to start the application process unless you can say to us with clear conviction, God sent me. And we need to be clear of that. So as we... Talk about going for God, getting sent out by God. We want to look at three biblical case studies for what it means to go for God. The first is the story of Abram, later renamed Abraham. Look at Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 5. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 5. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. 
So Abram went, and the Lord, as the Lord told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he went out from Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, and all the possessions they had accumulated, and all the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. The thing I want you to see about Abram is that he went with his family and traveled where God sent him. This is something very subtle that you don't often hear in a Bible college setting or, or when we're talking about full-time ministry. But the fact is, Abram never preached a sermon. He never did an outreach. He never planted a church. He never did anything that we would consider ministry. Okay? And yet, unmistakably, he had the, the greatest impact of, of just about anybody in the entire world aside from Jesus. To make a long story short, Jesus is called the son of Abraham because Jesus' genealogy goes all the way back to him. You have Abraham. God promises him a son named Isaac. Isaac has a son, Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. One of them is Judah. And Jesus comes uh, over a thousand years later to the tribe of Judah. Okay? Abraham was a man of faith. And he was a man to whom God made a great promise. And we'll call the promise here in verses 2 and 3, we'll call that point Z. Okay? I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. That's point Z. Point Z is when Jesus comes into the world and fulfills everything that God had promised to Abraham over a thousand years after his lifetime. That's point Z. Point A, you have a 75-year-old man with no children taking his wife and nephew from the place he grew up in to a place that God will show him, but he hasn't even shown him yet. Remember that uncertainty. He's going into the great unknown, and he's taking his family with him. He's leaving everything he knew, and he's taking his family. And by the way, everything rides on that. It rides on him having a son whom God promises him. Even in his old age, his wife is barren. God promises him a son. It takes 25 years to have that son. And it has to be through his wife. You know the story of Hagar? Okay? He gets a little impatient. Rather, his wife does. It's actually her idea, crazy enough. I don't know anybody whose wife would ever dream of this. Hey, honey, you know, I've been kind of barren lately. So here's, you know, here's Hagar. Here's my servant. Lay with her, have a child with her, and, and she'll have it in my name. That obviously didn't work out. It had to be through his wife, the wife God gave him. Everything was riding on his family. And why do I say that? Because as I pointed out, Abraham never performed an outreach or preached a sermon or planted a church. You could say in one sense his family was his ministry. 
Now, you're going to be probably doing all the above in some way, shape, or form, preaching, evangelizing, teaching, uh, so on and so forth. You'll be doing what we call ministry. But your family is just as much intertwined to your calling. In fact, it, your, your calling is your family's calling. You think of it like that. Your calling is your family's calling. The two are intertwined. Just as a husband and wife, the two become one. Think about that. The two become one. So if you have two folks, one is called to, to full-time ministry, you want to wanna have the other spouse either called to full-time ministry or being in a place where they are just as on fire as you and they love Jesus and they're going to support you all the way through. And all you single folks, you don't settle for less. They need to talk in tongues. Come on. They need to be filled with the Holy Ghost. And they need to be about it, about it. They need to dream of reaching the lost and dying multitudes just like you are. They need to dream of building up the body of Christ just like you do. And if they're not about that, if their head is in other places, if they're dreaming other things than what you're dreaming, you've got to kick them to the curb. Don't settle for less. Again, I want to carefully state if you are called into full-time ministry and your spouse is not that's, that's not, that's not a disqualifier. What I'm saying is they have to have the same fire and passion for the Lord as you do, and they got to support that. And your family has to be ordered around the calling. It has to be ordered around the calling. Not forsaken for the calling. Some folks will forsake their families for ministry. No, you need to evolve, involve your family in ministry. Where your family is all, they're always in church and they're serving and they're witnessing and they're watching you serve joyfully. And they see you as their great example of joyful servants of the Lord. Think about where you will live. God says, go to a place I'll show you later. If you're going to go for God, you've got to go where he sends you, not just wherever you want to go. Now, some folks will go to the mission field, and they'll live far, far away, far from everything they've ever known, kind of like Abraham. In a different culture, maybe they'll live with less of the privileges, less of the uh, comforts that they currently enjoy and experience. That's perhaps the case, but no matter what, it's submitted to God. So you might move across the ocean for Jesus, because that's where he sent you. You might move one town over. You might move one block over. The point is, all of that has to be ordered around the calling that's on your life. Amen? So it has, it has to be there. Abram gives us this great example. He wants him to go to the land of Canaan. This would eventually be the promised land. He cannot inherit God's promise just staying where he's at. He has to go where God is sending him. And this is literally geographical. And we're going to see this later on with the apostles as well. So where does God want to send you? And who does God want to send you with? These are things that are worth pondering. Where does God want to send you? Does he want you to stay in Chicago? Is Chicago the place where he's going to position you to, do, to have the greatest impact for his kingdom? Or is he going to send you to, to another city, to another American city? Is he going to send you across the world? 
that's, that's something that he has to decide and you have to be willing to follow. And who are you going to go with? You got to have a family that's going to go with you. They got to go with you wherever God sends you. So he takes his nephew Lot. That's where Lot messed up, by the way, because he and Abram split up. You know where Lot ended up? Sodom. You guys know about Sodom, right? Did it go good for him or bad? It went bad. Took his nephew, took his wife, took everything. Where are you going and who will be going with you? The second case study is Isaiah. This was the opening verse, and I didn't want to give too much away, but I do want to read the entire context. So let's look at Isaiah 6, verses 1 through 10. Isaiah 6, verses 1 through 10. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with, with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here, here am I, send me. Then he said, Go and tell this people, Be ever hearing but never understanding. Be ever seeing but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people callous. Make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Then I said, For how long, Lord? And he answered, Until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant. Until the houses are left desolate and the fields ruined and ravaged. Let's pause right here. The point I want to make about Isaiah is that he went in the midst of a national crisis to preach to a hard-hearted people. Any place you find yourself, anywhere you go for God, it's not a blank canvas. There is a history to whatever place you go to, to whatever people that you visit. There's a culture that already exists. There is a belief system that already exists. There are strongholds that exist. There are current events in that culture that you must be aware of. And as Ecclesiastes says, there's nothing new under the sun. And so in Isaiah's case, he is being commissioned by the Lord in the year that King Uzziah died. And what's going to happen over the next few decades during Isaiah's ministry is that there's... Uh, there's something called the 
seroephromitic crisis. Don't worry, you're not getting tested on that. But I, I learned that in SUM, by the way, about the seroephromitic crisis. And to make a long story short, this was the series of uh, socio-political events. You remember that, Dr. Miller? Oh, and he he met he brought it up in all his classes. Oh man, you missed out. There's this chain of events where you have these nations. It was Syria and Israel, and they actually had colluded against Judah because Israel was divided at the time. You see, so you had Israel and Judah. This was a divided nation. So again, he's, this, there's history here. And now you have uh, Israel and Syria going against Judah and basically saying, join our coalition or we'll make war against you. What ends up happening, though, is that Assyria wipes out Israel and Syria. And so this uh, culminates in 722 B.C., when Assyria, which is this major world empire, I'm saying Assyria and Syria, two different places, you get me? Okay, so Assyria, this major world power, this cruel and vicious empire, comes and destroys uh, uh, Israel, destroys their capital city, Samaria, and deports the people. And so all the, all the while leading up to that, Isaiah is prophesying. He's what you call a doom and gloom preacher. And he's basically telling them, God is going to do this. God is going to hand you over because he's sick of your stuff. He made a covenant with you. He gave you so many blessings. He revealed himself to you like he did for no other nation under the sun. And you spit in his face and you worship other gods and you have an unjust, perverse society. And this is going on for prolonged centuries. And this is going to culminate in a horrific judgment in the form of military conquest. We don't know anything about that. We have not had war touch our shores, praise God. But there are folks in the world who have experienced real warfare in their midst. And this was about to happen. And he's preaching, and God is promising him that he's going to have a best-selling book. He's going to be a sought-after speaker, and he's going to have a platform before millions of people. Is that what it says? Note what it says in verses 9 and 10. Go and tell this people, be ever hearing but never understanding, be ever seeing but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused, make their ears dull and close their eyes, otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. He's promising Isaiah that his audience will not listen. And he says, preach to them anyway. Preach to them anyway. For how long, Lord? until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant. Well, if God told you that today, how would you take that news? You're going to preach to America, stop aborting your children, stop being perverse, stop being corrupt, and you're going to do this until you watch this, the nation you love, the nation you grew up in, the nation you call home, utterly destroyed. And that's your 
calling. Because remember, you're going for God, right? You're going for no other reason than God said so. There is no guarantee. Going back to this thing of uncertainty, the unknown, there is no guarantee that you will have success in your ministry. No guarantee whatsoever. Who wants to sign up for that? There's no guarantee you're going to be rich. There's no guarantee you're going to be famous. There's no guarantee people are going to like you. There's no guarantee you're going to live a long life. In fact, none of those things are guaranteed for anybody. But when you go for God, you lose the illusion of control you think you have over your life. And you could, like Stephen in the book of Acts, look at chapter 7 in your own time, study it if you, if you don't know the story. Be a young man who barely got started. He preached his first sermon and he was stoned to death for what he was preaching. You could graduate Bible college, go to San Francisco, and get clobbered by a mob of gay people. I'm being real. You could go to jail. You saw that stuff in California, right? There are laws that are banning any sort of message that says a homosexual can change what they've been doing, how they've been feeling. And of course, the Christian message is preaching that. The Bible is preaching that. Any faithful minister confronted with the issue must say that. Yes, Jesus can change you. Yes, you must be changed. And you could go to jail for that. You want to sign up for that? You want student loan debt for that? Come on. Just helping you process this. We're not doing SUM because it's cool. Okay? We're not doing it for that reason. But back to this larger point. Everywhere you go, it's going to be a crisis. Everywhere you go, there's, there's something going on. There's a belief system in place that resists the gospel. There's people in power that resist the gospel. You get me? There are strongholds everywhere you go that must be torn down. We're going to war, folks. We're going to war. The last case study is of the apostles. Look at Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20. You probably know this one by now, don't you? Some of you know it verbatim. This is the famous Great Commission text. This is our resurrected Lord essentially giving marching orders to his disciples. He says in Matthew 28, 18, Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go... And make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. The apostles went to the ends of the earth with only the promise of God's faithful presence. 
I think back to another text in Matthew. You can see Matthew chapter 10. He sends them out. He says, listen, don't take anything extra. Don't take any extra food. Don't take another walking stick. Don't take another cloak, right? Tells them to be very bare minimum, right? And just kind of take whatever whatever you can get. I kind of see it like that. He's basically sending them out with one thing, the promise that he will be with them to the end of the age. And that's the only thing that you're promised, folks. That's the only thing I can promise you today is that no matter what you do, if you go for God, if you go in obedience to God, whether you're rich or poor, whether people love you or hate you, Jesus will be with you and his smile will shine on you and you will be blissed. You will be more satisfied and fulfilled than anything in this world can give you. And I don't want to get ahead of myself too much. I want to talk about what happened when they went. There's a saying I like. It says, Jesus said, go. He never said anything about coming back. Listen, friend, if you come back, you failed the mission. You come back to Jesus licking your wounds, saying, this isn't for me. You failed the mission. You don't come back. There is no turning back. And you'll see this fleshed out in the lives of the men to whom he spoke those words. So here's the application of these three points. From Abram, we learn application number one. Going for God means that your family and entire way of life must be ordered around the call God has placed on you. You need to have your family in mind as you enter into that calling. You need to have your children in mind the way you want to raise them the type of marriage you want to have, even down to where you're going to live. You have to make sure that, that at an instant, whenever God says it, they're going to go with you. And they understand because your calling is their calling. Their calling is your calling. And this is seen, we're, we're going to forego some of the text here, but Matthew 9, 19, 27 through 30 is the text you can look at for that. Number two, going for God means going in, into a world of crisis. This is what Isaiah teaches us. Matthew 24, 4 through 14 is referenced, and it's an end time prophecy. But the way I see it, and there's folks who may disagree with this, but this has always been happening. Wars, rumors of wars, false religion, false teaching being spread, people hating and betraying one another, the love of many growing cold. This has been happening, and perhaps there will be a sharp increase as we approach the coming of, of the Lord. But this is always happening everywhere you go. And everywhere you go, you must bring the Word of God to bear on that culture. You must speak what God would say to, to where, where, where He sends you. You must bring the balm of Gilead to heal the wounds of those people. Wherever he sends you, it's a world in crisis. You know, you, you can, theoretically, take your degree. I, I haven't made a lot of promises, but here's a promise I can make. You can take your degree, and you can look online. There are actually services, kind of like career builder, but for churches. And you could take it and you can get a $40,000 job with benefits to be a, a, a youth pastor, associate pastor, worship pastor, somewhere out in the burbs. $40,000 in benefits. Now, Jesus loves the suburbs. 
Don't get me wrong. But I'm saying it's, it would almost be like a retreat from where I stand. We're the school of urban missions, not the school of suburban missions, folks. We're going to the city. We're going to the hood. We're going to the gente, right? We're going to our people, man. You know what I'm saying? We're going to La Raza. Okay, a lot of Latinos here. Right? Come on. We're going where it's hurting. We're going where the needs are. Lastly, the apostles, this is the, this is the last point under application. Going for God means going into the great unknown with no promise of safety or worldly success, only the faithful love of God. Look at John 14. I do want to look at these verses. John 14, 19 through 23. These are the words of Jesus to his disciples. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me because I live, you also will live. On that day you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. And the one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. Follow the line of logic there. The one who keeps my command, and you have a command to go, the one who keeps my commands is the one who loves me. And the one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them, and I will show myself to them. Then Judas, not Judas Iscariot, said, But Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus replied, Anybody who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. Not only does He send you, He goes with you. Wherever you are, there He is. And it's home. He makes His home with you wherever He sends you. It may be so far away from your mama, so far away from everything you've known, and yet you're home with your father he goes on in that same context a very well known passage John 16 33 for I have told you these things so that in me you ha may have peace in this world you will have trouble but take heart I have overcome the world he's promised trouble that's another thing I could promise you I don't know what it's going to look like TJ I don't know who your wife is going to be stop asking me I'm playing, I'm playing. I know, I know, I know who it is. But look, all I know is you're going to go for God. You're not going to come back, right? And you're going to live out the adventure of a lifetime for Jesus. And he's going to be with you wherever you go. And you'll be in trouble, but he'll be with you in the midst of the trouble. 
a little bit about the apostles. We shared with you the Great Commission a moment ago. Jesus said go. He never said anything about coming back. This is what became of the men to whom he gave the Great Commission. Simon Peter, who was appointed by Jesus to be leaders, the leader of the church, was eventually martyred in Rome during the reign of the Emperor Nero. As the story goes, Peter asked to be crucified upside down so that his death would not be equal of Jesus, and the Romans supposedly obliged. Andrew, according to 15th century historian Dorman Newman, Andrew, the brother of Peter, went to Patras in Western Greece in 69 AD and to make a long story short he was scourged by the ruler in that place and then tied rather nailed rather than nailed to a cross so that he would suffer for a longer time before dying Andrew lived for two days during which he preached to passers-by James the son of Zebedee his death is recorded in Acts chapter 12 he was killed with the sword by Herod Agrippa. After James was arrested and led to the place of execution, his unnamed accuser was moved by his courage. He not only repented and converted on the spot, but asked, asked to be executed alongside James. The Roman executioners obliged, and both men were beheaded simultaneously. John the beloved was the only one of the original disciples not to die a violent death instead he passed away on Patmos sometime around 100 AD now that was an island of exile it's a barren place and that was actually he was put there by the Roman government so that was a form of persecution Philip the first of Jesus disciples became a missionary in Asia Eventually, he traveled to the Egyptian city of Heliopolis, where he was scourged, thrown into prison, and crucified in 54 AD. Bartholomew supposedly preached in several countries, including India, where he translated the Gospel of Matthew for believers. In one account, impatient idolaters beat Matthew and then crucified him, while in another he was skinned alive and beheaded. Thomas. Apparently, Thomas preached the gospel in Greece and India where he angered local religious authorities who martyred him by running him through with a spear. Matthew, according to legend, the former tax collector turned missionary was martyred in Ethiopia where he was supposedly stabbed in the back by a swordsman sent by King Hertakis after he criticized the king's morals. James, the son of Alphaeus, according to Fox's Book of Martyrs, James, who was elected by his fellow believers to head the church in Jerusalem, was one of the longest-lived apostles, perhaps succeeded only by John. At the age of 94, he was beaten and stoned by persecutors, who then killed him by hitting him in the head with a club. Thaddeus, also known as the other Judas, according to several stories, was crucified at Edessa, which could be either located in Greece or Turkey in 72 AD. Simon the Zealot preached in Mauritania on the west coast of Africa and then went to England where he was crucified in 74 AD. 
And of course, we know what happened to Judas, but you have the 11 apostles, and they went and preached faithfully wherever they go. Let's all stand. As I was thinking about the disciples and their martyrdom, this is not a message about martyrdom, by the way. This is just about going for God. And it just so happens that the first men he sent out, all this, this is what happened. In fact, the same thing happened to Isaiah and said that Isaiah was sawed in half. And I thought about my life, thought about my family, my wife, my children, everything I hold dear. And I thought of worst case scenarios. This isn't to scare you, but it is to sober you and it is to realize that your life, your family does not belong to you. You were bought with a price. So friend, I just want to urge you for a few moments just to internalize this message right now. Will you go for God? knowing that there's no promises but trouble and his presence. That's all he promises you. Trouble and his presence. Come on. If you're having if you're having second thoughts about serving the Lord, you need to deal with that now. You need to talk to the Lord. If you're thinking about coming back, licking your wounds, discouraged, tired, beat up, if you're thinking of some sort of scenario that's a deal breaker where, where you say to God, God, this further and no more, I won't go any further, I won't go there, I won't give that. If you can envision any scenario in your mind, anything that's off limits to Him, you need, to, you need to deal with your God on that right now. actually get prepared, get in the key of a word of God speak, because we need the Lord. As As I was praying for you all, I'm like, only the Lord can send you and only the Lord can keep you. Oh my God, we need you. Some of you have already firm in your calling, but God may yet want to give you a word. And the way I've heard it explained, I think this was from, from Lester Sumrall. He gave this understanding of a prophetic word. In that a word, it's not a sentence, it's not a paragraph, but it's a fragment of a complete thought. And he gives you a word at a time to get you from A to Z. To reveal a little something of his heart and something of his plan. 
And the Lord may want to speak to you yet. If you're already firm in your calling, if you're not sure whether this is for you, you need to hear him to begin with, because I can't do it. The, the piano, the emotion that, that the music produces, that's, that's not going to do it. Almighty God has to send you. And you need to get it in with your maker. enter into worship with the Lord. up to this altar here. Come on. Let's get out of our seats. Let's come up. Shura Bhai. 